Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Doman. And this is episode 115. Okay, so before we start, we got all the events that are happening at Macrofab. We have the Twitter chat uh, this Friday, April 13th at 1 p.m. Central. Ooh, Friday the 13th. Mm. I'm actually going to be in Milwaukee doing it. Um, so I'm I'm going to the Midwest Gaming Classic. That's the pinball festival, right? Pinball, video games, etc. Just so, kind of like everything. Yeah, so if you're in... Uh, Milwaukee this weekend. Stop by MGC and you know tweet me at Longhorn Engineer with no O's, and yeah, I'll be there. Um, I think it's also CypherCon is like right next door. What's that? It's some CypherCon. <laughs> I think it's like a coding or like crypto oh, okay. conference. So like the real nerds go there. Sure. I'm I'm looking it up real quick on my on my okay. computer phone. Um, and so the next meetup is next week. Um. Since we moved it up from the last Wednesday of the month to the third Wednesday of the month. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the 18th, I think. I'm looking it up currently because I also do not. Yeah, the 18th. Wednesday yeah. the 18th. Yeah, Wednesday the 18th of this month. Um, I will be giving a talk about the key parts of an Arduino, which is basically we'll go over what what is an Arduino, the hardware, and then if you use it on your project, how do you take that hardware and port it over into your own design what's important what's not oh what yeah if you take all the different blocks like which ones do you, will need? you need to keep yep. yeah 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 cuz it can get a little bit confusing yeah especially since they have really weird power stuff on there you don't need most of it for a single application right. it's designed to be really flexible so if you just take the flexibility out of it then you lower your bill of material cost well and 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 when they switched over to the what the 16u for handling usb correct uh that is confusing because it's not a drag and drop component anymore yeah you have to program it right you got to program it so uh it'd be cool to talk about like okay so if you need usb what's the easier way of doing it correct yeah or least expensive Right, yeah. right. Um, and then Trey German will give a talk about taking off-shelf enclosures and customizing them, silk screening, stuff like that. Um, he was on, Trey, you might recognize his name, he was on the MEP episode 10, so he's an OG. And uh, episode 38. 38, yeah, where he returned. So we'll <laughs> probably have him on the, he'll have another return on the podcast eventually. Probably eventually. Because it's been over 100 episodes since he's been on. Episode 38, I think it was either right Right before or right after the Icarus uh, trophy? Right after the Icarus trophy. Right, that, that, where he, he did, like, he flew for, like, 10 bazillion miles in yeah. his parasail or whatever. Uh, and around he, the world he, in a parasail. Yeah, and, and I know he's done, like, 10 more since we recorded episode 38, so he'll probably yeah. come back on and talk about that again. Yeah, so that'd be pretty cool. Yep. And then we have something new. We have the Houston Hardware Happy Hour, H4, we're going to call it. Um, and that's the first Thursday of each month. So the first one is going to be May 3rd. And we are going to do it at a venue called Slowpokes here in Houston. Because it's really close to um, the Fab. And it is, it's got a lot of open area. Um, it's they, most they do coffee and beer. Coffee and, and beer and food. So it's something for everyone. Yep. Um, basically, I'll probably go there, get a beer, and then drink a coffee mm-hmm. while... Um, hopefully people bring their hacks and stuff so we can talk about their projects. Yeah. So it's going to be a little bit less, um, the, 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 the hardware meetup here at the fab is more of like engineering and like, um, networking and a little bit educational, yeah, also. educational where I'm hoping that the hardware happy hour is more fun and more relaxed and more of like show and telly 
Yeah, and like trading in a yeah. way, like trading what you know and things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so that's the first Thursday of each month. Um, what uh, what time does that start? 6 p.m. 6 p.m. Yeah. All right, cool. So, Stephen, yep. what have you been getting on to this week? So, uh, I, I, gosh, last episode, two episodes ago, I can't even remember now. I was talking about some some uh, voltage controlled filters last week. Last week, yeah, last week. And um, I wanted Every week. Uh, we, we, we've been doing <laughs> Parker and I've been doing a lot of like extra stuff. So I'm all like confused now. But yeah, last yeah. week, last week. So. Um, I wanted to talk about a chip that I've been using uh, in those uh, filters. It's actually really cool. It's called the uh, LM13700. Yeah, that's that dual operational transconductance amplifier with linearized diodes and buffers built in. Oh, look, someone did his homework before. I just copied and pasted on the sheet. <laughs> oh, yeah, TI built it, too. Uh, TI, there's a there's a handful of other guys, but yeah, TI is kind of <laughs> one of the main guys. And you can get it right from Mauser. Um, so it's, it's actually a really cool little widget. Uh, it's an OTA, Operational Transconductance Amplifier, which is not an op-amp. Uh, okay, so what, what does transconductance? Ah, see, that, that's, that's a really... So, if you break it down, trans is going across a country or across a long way. Uh, sure, well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's the, the, the change okay. of conductance. Ah, okay. Uh, a conductance changer, in a way. So, so this, this little device is, it looks... So it gets confusing because it looks like an op-amp when you draw the symbol. Uh, it actually mm-hmm. looks like an op-amp where if you took scissors and clipped off the nose of the op-amp. So you kind of draw a trapezoid okay. uh, for it. But it still has like a plus and minus input. But it has a third input, uh, which you actually inject a current, not a voltage, into that third input. Okay. And you basically have control over the gain of that uh, block with that third input. So... An op amp has two, you know, a positive or an, and a negative input terminal. So it's kind of, uh, uh, so that current input's kind of like a BJT, then where it's a current controlled amplifier. So actually, okay, so if you peel the hood off of an OTA, the front end of it is almost identical to the front end of an actual op amp. Okay. Uh, however, the front end of an op amp is is two two transistors or two mm-hmm. like amplifying elements in a differential pair and the amount of current that flows through them helps dictate how much gain the whole system has yep. an OTA has that exact same input but it allows you to with another pin control how much current goes through the, that front end mm-hmm. so an, a regular op amp has you know gazillions of gain it like uh, like a, a crappy op amp will have like 200,000 times gain something stupid like that and an op amp just uh, applies that gain to the difference of its input terminals. Correct. So if you have one volt difference on an op amp, it's trying to make it be 200,000 volts on the output, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously won't work. Yeah, you hit your rail. Right, right. <laughs> so so an OTA, an operational transconductance amplifier, does the exact same thing. However, it spits out a current that is proportional to the change or the difference in its input terminals. And that third gain terminal will change the uh, kind of the gain Sc- of the current. So transconductance is, uh, is it's measured in um, units of MHOs, which is ohm spelled backwards. Okay. And it's how much current... Uh, versus how much voltage so like a traditional voltage gain is how many volts per volt Mm -hmm. this is 
how much milliamps per volt okay. is in this case is how transconductance is 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 uh, handled so you put a difference of voltage say you put one volt difference in there that might equal one milliamp on the output gotcha so it doesn't work like an op amp because you don't apply feedback in the same way mm -hmm. it does all the same things don't work in the same way however what's nice about it is that third pin that controls the gain you can make all kinds of things that are variable with it uh, and control them easily with just a current. And that current can be generated easily by just putting a resistor on that pin and then you apply voltage to that resistor and you basically get a current mm -hmm. into that pin. So, all said and done, you can make voltage-controlled amplifiers, you can make voltage-controlled filters, you can make devices that act like a variable resistor. Uh, you can actually even string two of them together and make a variable resistor where one side doesn't have to be tied to ground. It can be anywhere. Floating. It could be floating. So technically, you could actually make a virtual resistor that is in the feedback path of a regular op-amp, and you could control the gain of the regular op-amp. Regardless, this thing is just allows a, a lot of control. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what's cool about it is on the output, all you do is you slap a capacitor on the output and you have a low-pass filter. Yep. And based on the value of the capacitor and a handful of other things, you can control the low-pass filter where the cutoff is. And if you need higher-order filters, just string these blocks together. Every time you add one of these blocks, you get another, another order. Another order. So I thought I just might showcase that, that little chip. It's confusing at first because... Most most of the time you don't learn about an OTA. You don't. Mm -hmm. So actually, just as a quick little side note, an OTA is sort of like half of an op amp. Uh, it's like an op amp that doesn't have the voltage output tacked onto it. Gotcha. It's like they cut the op amp before it gets to that. They point. cut the nose off of it. They cut the nose off of it and just give you voltage. Um, so, I mean, so I've been using those uh, to make a handful of filters. They work really great. Um, I was even actually able to make some uh, variable all-pass filters, uh, which I don't know if you've ever used an all-pass filter. Uh, all-pass filters are pretty cool. Zero-ohm resistor. Um, well, <laughs> so, so, yeah, but it's but it, but it, but here's the thing about an all-pass filter that's that's weird. It doesn't attenuate your signal at all. Mm -hmm. What it does is it just shifts the phase. Oh, so okay, if, okay. if you need a signal where, uh, like, say, high frequencies are delayed, but mm -hmm. low frequencies are not, you can you can do that with an all-pass filter. But you can shift it also. So so consider this: if you have like a, a low-pass filter, you know, uh, mm -hmm. at at its cutoff frequency, it's supposed to have 45 degrees of phase shift, yep. and further out, it'll go all the way to 90 degrees. Uh, well, if you want to do like algebraic adding or subtracting to that signal with another signal, the phase has to match. Mm -hmm. So you can take a low-pass filter and an all-pass filter, pass your signals through them and then you can do any kind of algebra you want because at every frequency point they will be in phase with each other and you'll get real results so this is what us analog guys mess around <laughs> with all day long what, what keeps you up at night actually yeah phase I, like, changing. I like this stuff I, I think phase is weird phase is, is like because a lot of times you know when you look at filters online and stuff you just see a magnitude response you're like oh this is great i can reduce this this blah 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 yeah this and that works until you forget about phase and then your your whole circuit goes crazy and at the same time like if you're doing you know filtering you do have to worry eventually about it of you know phasing to the point where it's 360 degrees out of phase and then
then you start oscillating somewhere else in your circuit, and you don't you didn't realize it. Uh, so you kind of have to pay attention to that yeah. stuff. Uh, regardless, the LM thirteen seven hundred is an OTA. Uh, so what, what's the best way for people to learn more about OTAs and stuff? You know, uh, so. I think the, the funny thing is OTAs are so kind of funky, and you're not taught them in school unless you take, like, a really high-level class. Uh, go download the data sheet for the Texas Instrument LM13700. It is just it has pages and pages of example circuits of things you can build with it. Mm-hmm. And I think they put all those examples in it because they're like, nobody knows what this thing will do. Does. Yeah. yeah, nobody <laughs> would know how to actually do it because it's funky. So like, some gray beard wrote all those examples? Yeah. Well, collected and, them over the years? And the thing is, like... So, okay, a, a great example. Let's say you had a left and right channel stereo and mm-hmm. you wanted to control the, the, the volume on them from a microcontroller in a really cheap way. That's actually not as easy as you think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with one LM13700, it has two of these OTAs inside of it. You can control both left and right channel at the same time and you're, they'll track very well. And you could just put a PWM signal right into that control pin mm-hmm. uh, you know, with a little bit of filtering and you have... You know, you have left and right channel volume control from a microcontroller it, for like a couple of, not even a couple, probably like $2 worth of parts, mm-hmm. maybe. Uh, so, you know, that kind of stuff is really, really, uh, it's useful for that. But the thing about it is like, uh, w- most of us engineers don't really think in terms of current. Mm-hmm. We think that current is not a byproduct. Like, yeah, a, a current feels like a byproduct. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you have a device where it, they don't tell you what the output voltage is, they only tell you what the output current is, and then you put a capacitor on the output, like think about that. You, you're, you kind of short circuit in your head. You're like, oh, wait, how do I calculate this? Yeah. You have to go back to your <laughs> equations for a capacitor. Yep. Uh, and and if you remember the S domain and doing Laplace transforms, oh, if no. you do a Laplace, tra- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Neither ne- neither did I before I started playing with this. But yeah, no. If you look at a Laplace transform, uh, it'll give you all the information because yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like if if I were to tell you like hook a inductor to a current source, like you'd have to sit back and be like, oh gosh, what do I do? But if I if I said you know, I put five volts across an inductor, you'd probably be like, oh, okay, I know what it does. Yeah, I know so, it does. Yeah, yeah, so you kind of have to re- rearrange your mind. Uh, but it's a good exercise. You know, that would be an interesting class. Electrical engineering from a current perspective. Which is funny because it's actually all supposed to be from a current perspective. Yeah, yeah. Because current amperage is the unit that is, like, the, the primary the, the primary defined yeah. unit. But it's the one that we're like, that's kind of the bad one. You know, like... <laughs> We put five volts across the resistor, therefore current flows. No, yep. you, you have to. Th- you're supposed to think of it as, oh, I'm flowing current through a resistive element, therefore a potential develops. Yep. That's the way you're supposed to be taught. But, and 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 it's different in analog and digital because digital guys, it's zero and one, and those zero mm-hmm. ones are not current; they're voltage. Current is sort of your enemy in digital circuits. You don't want things to flow. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, Ooh. that's why everything's like high impedance input or or. You know, high Z and stuff like that. Everything everything behaves nicely yeah. when you do that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, when when you start getting into the need for things like voltage controlled filters, you have to start thinking in other terms. Yeah. So cool. Yeah, that's that. And I heard you fixed something. I did today. I, actually, I fixed something earlier today, and it was a little bit scary. Uh, <laughs> scary just because I've never done it, and I've been told I shouldn't do it, but I did it. Uh, I actually recharged the uh, refrigerant in my. You have kegerator. all ten fingers. I do have well, all ten eight fingers, fingers and yeah. two thumbs. All the hairs on my head, and like I'm not a weird green color or anything like that. Yep. Uh, although I could have been, you, you never know. <laughs> like so, so I, yeah, I recharge. I recharge the refrigerant in my uh, 
kegerator. I've had a broken kegerator for years now. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it was just out of Freon, right? Yeah, but like I went through like all the steps to try to figure out because I because everyone always told me you can't do that. And I even people at my local hardware store were like, you have to have a license in order to even buy Freon. Well, apparently you don't if you go to Amazon.com. <laughs> 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 they don't care. They'll what, say what, anything. What'd you buy? Like R34A? Or? It's 134-A. Yeah, that's that's like that's usually what goes in cars and yeah, in refrigerators. Can, yeah, you can just buy 134A at a AutoZone. Which which is interesting because I went to Home Depot and I went to uh, a local hardware store and both of them were like, do you have a license? I'm like, no, I just they want that probably stuff. probably just... Tell that to everyone. Well, they probably looked at me and they're like, "This this guy has no clue." This guy's just gonna go out in the out in the parking lot and just stab it with a knife. <laughs> Let it all out. Yeah. It's so hot in Houston. We just pour our one thirty four on us, yeah, just to cool off. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, no. So like, I had to go buy like a a, a needle piercing valve and. So pick, where'd you get that? Pick the right Cause tube because that, that was like hard to get too. Uh, Amazon. Uh, actually, what's funny is, okay, so at hardware stores, you can find refrigerant, but you can't find the needle piercing valves. Um, gotcha. And, and, and here's what's so goofy about it is Amazon has the needle piercing valve as an add-on item. Uh, you know, when like, you buy that Freon stuff, it's like one of those add-on for actually, Prime. you can buy anything. As long as it's $25, you can get a needle valve for like 3 bucks. And <laughs> it's I don't know. Like So apparently enough people buy them that Amazon's like, this is a sponsored item or whatnot. So. Amazon's choice. For destroying yeah. the ozone. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Freon's pretty nasty stuff. It's pretty toxic. Well, I think R134A is it is not that bad. I can't remember. I think it's one of, one it's, of the ones it's, that you It's lower on the bad scale. Yeah. One of the ones that used before R12, I think. One of them is just straight up propane. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that's R12. There's but regardless, propane, R134A... I and you can use it. acetone also, I think. Yeah. Well, you want anything that you can, if you design your system right for for um, compressive heat management, yeah, heat well, pumping. Yeah. Right. Um, you just want something that phase changes really well. Right. Which any kind of ethanol or any kind of uh, you could highly des- evaporated circuit, uh, not a circuit, a system around any. Well, because one of the ori- some of the original ones used um um something A. Why can't I? Th- it's, not, it's not acetone, but it's. Um, Antifreeze? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, why? Is, I can't remember. Oh, I'll, I'll, it'll come up later. Not acetone? Okay. No. Huh. Um, um, oh. Uh, they're using the space station right now for the same thing. Cause it's like one of the best ones. Yeah, but it can be corrosive, right? It, but yes, it is. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, depending on the situation, it'll be corrosive. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah um, I know what you're talking about. Um, I can't. It does not come into mind. But but regardless, I did read the can of R134A, and it and it had a lot of precautions about not breathing it, and it it, it was very bleak, and it said things like "You will die." And then, <laughs> you you know, will like, die. You yeah. touch this can, you will which, die. Which which is funny, and and my listeners are gonna, they're all gonna laugh at this, but uh, so I tightened everything down really well, but it was still like I don't know if I've got it good enough. So I I, I opened the can up a little bit. There's a valve at the top of the can to my feed hose and the pressure went up but i heard a little bit of a hissing sound um, <laughs> yeah, well yeah like so i was like is that the hissing of the the freon going into the compressor or is that something else what did you find it you were looking no r290 is is just straight up propane oh okay 290 is propane okay yeah. but yeah so so i did hear a little bit of hissing i i corrected everything and tightened everything ammonia down. ammonia that's it yeah yeah in fact um so the in Dubai, 
there is a indoor skiing in Dubai, which is like that's one of the hottest places on earth. And they created like a place that will snow indoors, and you can like take a ski lift up and go skiing in Dubai. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of money there. Um, but regardless, the entire like arena that it's in is blanketed in ammonia, uh, and that's how they that's how they keep it cold. And they and it will snow in. Dubai inside this like tank. Look it up. It's super cool. That's crazy. Yeah, using it's super cool. For there's, that. A, there's there's a whole <laughs> documentary about it, and uh, yeah, there, actually the documentary is really great because they go through like the inspection of the welds, and apparently they got like seventy five percent of the way done, and whoever was contracted to do the welding did a horrible job, so they had to go back and re weld everything, Ooh. which that sucks yeah. because. You know, even out in the middle of the desert, you have an ammonia leak. That's a bad thing. Yeah, you it's know, a bad thing. You don't want that happening. Uh, uh, yeah, how much so- ammonia we need to cool down an entire building? Like a ginormous warehouse that you can ski in. Okay, so this 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 whole ski arena looks like kind of it looks like a giant radiator that's like tipped up at an angle. Uh, so like like I said, the whole thing is surrounded in ammonia tubing and things. Look it up; it's weird. Okay, so so yeah, that's that's what I've done. I've analog filters and freon. Freon. <laughs> <laughs> what um, you been up to? So I've uh, been. You know, working more on the knowledge base, kind of got that thing all worked out. Probably yep. people are bored of me talking about that. Um, so I'm in kind of working on the next set of articles because I'm still waiting for the DAC stuff to show up. Um, that should be here in the next two weeks. And then give me a week to write the article, and then that will be all wrapped up. So that'd be cool. Um, but the next one I'm going to work on is USB Type C articles. I did, we, we were talking about this a couple of years ago, but it kind of. Sort of right when USB Type-C was kind of coming out. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so I'm going to actually write those articles now, basically because now um, that's kind of like my new position here at MacFab is content writing. So I'm like, cool, now I can actually get through this entire, you know, three-year backlog. <laughs> you know what's articles. what I like about USB Type-C now? It's, it's still... Well, and I think it will be for a while. It's like newfangled in a way. Mm-hmm. So if you go look at, uh, I was at Fry's the other day and I was looking at something, and on the box it had like one of those big like now seen on TV with USB Type C. Yeah, well, no, it was like one of those big bubbles that has all the spikes over it, and it's like now with USB Type C. Like, and I know in a couple years it's going to be like old hat, but still, mm-hmm. like it's one of those things where it's like, ooh, it's got C on it. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. You're yeah. going to write an so, article about it. Yeah, and so the article is going to be about um, converting your USB 2.0 projects that have like micro USB or whatever to Type C. Um, yeah. Are you, you, you going to reference that footprint that you made for? Yep. Cool. Yeah, so it's going to be that kind of stuff. Is I'm going to bring that up and probably do a exercise in, you know, here's a design that you can download that has Type, uh, has, uh, type B micro on it. And we're going to convert it to a Type C, and what extra stuff you need, or stuff like that. What considerations you need. Well, um, do you have a kind of like a chip in mind that you want to use for that? Uh, you can pretty much use any um, USB 2.0 chip. Yeah. Um, so we'll probably just use like an FT230X or something. Oh, okay. So so uh, you're not going to in necessarily include the power handling side of it. No, no. This is just if you want to implement your old project. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. USB Type C, so you at least can use the new cable. Yeah. Um, power delivery stuff is a completely different beast, and one that I've only read like tech docs on, not actually done. And that's probably more than an article. Correct. Yeah. yeah. That's going to take like I need to read stuff for like a month and actually start experimenting and stuff. I want to see a hundred watts go through that uh, that cable. That cable. Yeah. yeah. You got to actually have a special cable for it. A special C. 
No, it's a special power delivery cable that's actually got circuitry so that the device the, or the two devices know the cable can support 100 watts. Ah, uh, yeah. How, so how do you prevent... How do you prevent both not trying to deliver 100 watts to each other? They talk to each other first before turning stuff on. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So that's why, like, if your phone is completely dead and you charge, you plug in Type-C into it, it might take a while before it starts fast charging because it has to power up enough to it go, so it can actually talk back. Gotcha. So, yeah, it would charge over the li- the lower voltage or the lower current. Yeah. And then is, spring to life. Yeah, spring to life. Cool. Um, and then I started looking at my website because I'm kind of like in that weird state where like I have a lot of projects that I haven't finished over like the past like five years. Yep. And so I started looking at my website and figuring out what one, like what kind of personal project can I finish or start working towards. And so I'm going to do that Game Boy VGA, finish that up because I got the proof of concept. We actually did the proof of concept for the Ben Heck show when we built this ginormous seven to one scale. So it's like a you know three feet tall Game Boy or whatever, four foot tall Game Boy actually. Yeah. Um, so and that's, it worked. Yeah, that's yeah. And it, the thing is, that's running like a really early, early version of the code, that's like hard coded for that resolution and all that stuff. And so what I want to do is take it. So first I'm going to I'm going to design a board because right now it's a dev board, so it's like in wires everywhere. So I want to take that design a board that can go into the Game Boy with the VGA port hanging out of it, and then start developing. Kind of like an a graphics engine, not really engine, but like a configurable driver. A configurable driver, so you can se- select what resolution you want it to output, that kind of stuff. So you can output to you know 320 by 200 resolution, or you can go all the way up to 16 uh, what 1600 by 1200 VGA, yeah. which is like the highest. How, um, how are you going to make that selectable? Is it going to be on the PCB, or is that going to be software in some So, point? yeah, what's going to do is when you turn it on, I'm just going to make it so if you hold A and B at the same time when you turn it on, it will, instead of reading from the Game Boy data port, it will just go into the... Uh, it'll just have a menu, and you can just select which one. Oh, okay, so, it'll, so be able it'll, to, it'll save that to memory, and then you just reset, and it goes back to the yep. processor? Yep. Yeah, okay, So cool. it'll be able to sniff the um, button presses and stuff. Yeah. And actually, I'm thinking about having it. The button presses go into the FPGA and then pass through, because that will only take like a couple nanoseconds to happen. Um, but that way, I can actually interrupt it or put my own signal in to the Game Boy. So, like, if I want to run a external like NES controller, I can do that with that. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. You can break the path and put yeah. whatever you want in. Yeah. Xbox on a Game Boy. If you wanted to. Yeah, that's cool. Um, but then I eventually want to do HDMI, but I got to learn HDMI. So that's way Have down ever, the road. Uh, well, you've done it on the Pinhack, right? Or uh, you didn't, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of implemented on the Raspberry Pi. And so right. we ju- I just had to route that. I didn't have to actually build a driver and spit out the signals correctly. Yeah. So you got to go learn all the standards. And yep. There's actually some really good um, HDMI stuff on FPGAs are fun. I think it's are fun. Anyways, I can post the link. It has like all the stuff like how to like demystifies HDMI and how it works. And they have like a like a dev board that you can get that has just like an HDMI port and FPGA on it, <laughs> and, and you can walk through the code and make it work and stuff like and that. Just spit stuff to a screen. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. I'm gonna try that because because HDMI it's it's both like a hardware thing, but it's also like a a handful of protocols that go with it. Yeah, you basically are setting up data streams. Right. It's almost like 
a spy. It's kind of like a spy. It's more like I square C. We just serialize a whole bunch of data at once. What's and like four channels. What's the data rate on HDMI? Fast. <laughs> it's got to be really fast because yeah. it's spinning both audio and video yep. uh, at high resolution. Yeah. So it's got to be ripping. Yep. But it has a ton of lines, right? It's not like one data line that's just No, no, ripping. usually it's four channel. Four channel, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or some communication and other random stuff, clocks and... Yeah. 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 All right. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what I'm going to start working on. So hopefully next week... My, at least my goal for the next podcast is I want to get all my old crap out, compile my old project, and see, if, first of all, if it compiles still. Oh, jeez. You should video that. <laughs> see how many errors it pops up yeah, the first time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, get that running. Get it running on the old hardware. I hopefully, Actually, hopefully I get that by tonight. That's my goal. Um, and then start routing the board. Now, the first draft of the board. So I'm going to pop on like a Cyclone 4... FPGA because I already have that design Eagle. I have all the support stuff for that already designed, so I actually can and copy it's still paste. Available. Yeah, and that's part still available. It's only like ten bucks. Um, put in a decent because uh, it currently runs off of a um, a just a voltage divider bridge to build the VGA. I'm like, I'll just put in a proper DAC and just drive the DAC, you know, spy. So that's actually going to take some time to figure out how to. Do that, yeah. Because I've never done that before. And then actually implementing, well, the first part's going to be basically abstracting all the math out of the the code to build all the timing signals based off of a chart. Now, oh, <laughs> because if you select one resolution, it's got whole different timings for each one, and so you have to put all those in and then make the basically the state machine work that way. Wow. Because originally it was only designed for like 800 by 600 resolution. You know, you know what job I would hate um, to be the guy who has to like draw all of the timing diagrams for data sheets. Data sheets. <laughs> you know, all the ones where like it has like all the definitions of like this falling edge this is right THP. here. Yeah, th- yeah, like <laughs> THC. <laughs> like every single little uh, like oh, that sounds terrible. Like yeah, but the person who does it loves it. Probably, yeah. yeah. His life lives between like two lines, like zero and high, and like all of those little <laughs> nuances in between there. Because like I've seen some data sheets where they'll devote an entire page, top to bottom, where like up at the top is your clock, and then all your signals are like oh, hammered. Yeah, all the bottom. Oh. Yeah, sounds like uh, well, to each their own. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So yeah, hopefully next week I have an update on that, um, and. What are you going to talk about next week, then? I guess more filters, right? Uh, we'll see. Yeah. We will see. There's a lot of things. Uh, filters and, and cold beer, because I've got cool. a kegerator now. <laughs> uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. All right. So, on to the RFO. Rapid Fire Opinion. Mm-hmm. So, Amazon is doing in-home delivery now. What, they deliver from room to room in your house? <laughs> like, there's a guy who walks in. <laughs> Here's your pizza. Alexa. <laughs> Bring me my pizza, or give me a cold beer from the fridge. There's just like a guy who lives in your fridge. <laughs> no, 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 no. So when instead of leaving the package on your front porch, they can access your house. Well, that's creepy. And put the package inside. So you have a, to give delivery instructions, like exactly where. So to well, put so it. what it is is a lot of these smart locks. They work off like I guess near field, you know, NFC communication possibly or RFID, hmm. and so. The Amazon delivery people will just unlock your 
house with that code, and then they put the package inside and close the door. Hmm. Fewer st- stolen packages. Yeah. Uh, I think we call them porch pirates. Porch pirates. Is that really what <laughs> yeah. it's called? Yeah, that's what oh, it's that's called. Oh, that's great. I haven't heard that before. Um, I, I, I think this is like the evolution of their delivery service, because it makes sense. Um, I, I think it's a little creepy, though. Uh, a lot creepy. Yeah. I'd rather than just like put the package on my back porch. How do you sign up for that? I think you just opt in. But I but like opting in requires like some you have extra have, information. You have to have a that they support like eight locks, different manufacturers, and so you have to say I have this lock, and then and then the code and whatever it is. Huh? That's Cause I, I I don't know what kind of code you get for a smart lock because a lot of them don't even have like they just have like a box on the front of your house. There's no like keypad or anything. It's just a flat box, right? And so I guess it's all wireless. So uh, I Hopefully wonder the then, internet's like, working when if, if you opt into that, and then let's say I don't know something happens and it doesn't work, do they leave it on your front porch or do they take the package back with them? Probably leave it on your front porch, <laughs> so it just defaults to the normal way. Yeah, hmm. it's um, that's creepy. I don't think I'm going to be uh, signing up for that anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> but you know, they they probably have some kind of like I don't know Star Trek scanner thing that the UPS guy carries around, and it can I think like, it's just a phone. Yeah, it's just a phone, but but it can I guess it can activate whatever it can yeah, reconfigure yeah, yeah. itself. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so the next one is the FTC says warranty void if sticker removed is not valid. This one is crazy. Um, so. Basically, the FTC is saying um, people can repair their products, which is really cool. Um, uh, companies can't put repair restrictions basically on their products unless they provide parts and services for free. So if you charge for parts and charge to fix stuff, like if you break your screen or whatever, um, a third-party fixer, I guess, is a, or a repair person or repair company is allowed to fix your phone without worrying bunk in your warranty basically right um i'm kind of like in the middle of this because i'm like sure it's a really good idea to be able to fix your stuff without the warranty but it's like it's it's that mechanics old mechanics thing where it's like it's a hundred dollars an hour if you let me fix it two hundred dollars an hour if you if i let you watch me while i fix it and it's three hundred dollars an hour if you try to fix it before i got to it Right, and it's, it's and it's four hundred dollars an hour if you talk while I fix it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but so what I'm most curious about on this is okay, great FTC, the Federal Trade Commission says yep. that that's not valid. So what? The manufacturer just goes, I don't care. It's still valid. Well, right? they can actually, um, what they can prosecute on this. Yeah, they can prosecute it on them and um, levy fines. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so this is a great thing. It's just one of those. It, you create this gray area, like, because it says for third party, are you a third party fixing your laptop? No, technically, yes. No, because you're end user. Uh, well, so you're not third party. How well, would you be third party? What unless, if you handed it to me then? Well, you would be a third party because you're not the end user. But you're, you're not the end. You're not the person who purchased it for the use of the mm-hmm. product. So. Uh, in terms of that, technically, yes. Although I'm sure there's all kinds of like mumbo jumbo that's in all the documentation that says that you have to be certified or licensed or whatever or known as a repair technician. Yeah, it's one of those weird areas where, like, let's say a, your laptop, your USB port blows up because you plugged something in that was bad, right? But it only blew up like the front end. So, like, the power delivery part. So, it like blew the polyfused of Kingdom Come, okay? Um, and you go in there and you 
wire a jumper across the polyfuse and basically pumping five volts to your port. So it fixes the port, okay? Comes later, you plug in another bunk device that basically now entirely blows up your laptop because your five volt line's not protected. Should the manufacturer be liable for that now? Of course because, not. Because technically, you didn't void the warranty. Um, you you well no, I think because you, you it you did not apply a fix that returns it to the original operating functionality of the device. So the answer would probably be no in that case, especially because in your example, you got rid of safety. <laughs> safety. <laughs> so bodges yeah. don't count. Yeah, a, a, aluminum foil over a fuse is not a fix. Yeah, or putting a twenty two LR bullet in a. In a what five we, millimeter? We talked fuse. about that one, yeah. didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's but a terrible fix. There. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you have it has to be. I guess there has to be some, you know, boundaries on what constitutes fixing it. Uh I, 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 I I've seen some pretty nasty fixes. That I'm like, I've done a handful of pretty <laughs> nasty. Fixes. I mean, you fixed a refrigerator. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, which which technically I think I wasn't supposed to be allowed to do, uh, but I, I did it, and I did it in a way that like that's the way a normal technician would do it. It's just, you know. I didn't know how to until I actually just did it. Um, but but I think what they're getting at with this is talking about the whole, um, do you have to have it repaired by that company or can it just be repaired by anyone else? Correct, yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe this is also... well. Okay. Yeah, I know where they're getting at. It's just one of those, it starts turning into when you start going to what I just said. Because technically, you didn't void the warranty unless you say... You have to get it repaired by a official third party, or you have to get it repaired to original specifications. Yeah. Um, then I could see that being fine. Well, I'm sure there's plenty of legal uh, terms about mm-hmm. modifications, and if you do anything outside of, oh, my wh- Jeep has no warranty on it now. Oh, zero. Yours, <laughs> yours is Dunsky. Yeah, nobody would warranty that thing. <laughs> I mean, it's well done. It's just nobody would warranty because it's so so different. But at the same time, this has to do with the sticker. Yeah. You know, and so if you remove that sticker, as you're going to void, according to the companies, yes, but according to the FTC, I guess no. No. Yeah. So you so, still have to warranty it, no matter what's in- happened inside of it, which is why I'm like. Eh. Seems like an overreach of power to me, you know. Maybe uh, because I mean that that means that means you could pour a uh, pour a coke in your laptop, you know, mess things up royally, take off the sticker, and still hand it to them, and be like, you you owe me a new one, you know, <laughs> like that. Eh, that seems a little nasty. I wonder why they chose to do this. Well, it actually has always been like this. Now they're actually starting to. Slot oh, manufacturers okay, so, so now. Okay. Now, yeah. one other thing, and, and I actually did some research. When I was uh, manufacturing amps as my main job, um, I put a, a sticker on the amps, and I put a big warning on there, and that was not because I didn't want people to modify them. I could actually care less if someone wanted to, but there's lethal voltages inside. So I used that as an indicator to see if someone had been inside of one of these amps and to protect saying... Do you need to be even more careful when you open up that panel? uh, Right, because technically you don't know what's in there. I mean, inside of a laptop, there's probably not a couple hundred volts, but... There could be for whatever reason. There could reason. be a ferocious ferret in there, for uh, all you know. You're right, you're right. Yeah, you don't know. The amps, like, rattling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
yeah I, I have had a cockroach in an amp explode before because uh, it it shorted the high voltage uh so yes you you have no idea uh and and so i don't know I, so a lot of times those warranty stickers mean more than just that mm-hmm. um so we have a uh, last topic um, I found this on Reddit, and it was a person asking about avoiding side entry into SMT pads and why you should avoid that, because there's not a lot of stuff on this. Um, and especially when you look at a lot of open source projects, like traces just go wherever into pads and stuff. Because he brought up some samples from like SparkFun and Adafruit and stuff like that, where like they do it, why is this bad practice? So side entry as in yeah, a trace comes into the side and has to make an immediate 90 degree to go into the component? Well, not just that, but like let's say you have a, a 0603 resistor and you have the um, instead of coming um, you know, upwards and down. It's kind of hard to explain without drawing. But instead of coming, um, you know, directly in from the top, from north-south, let's say the part was zero degrees, from the top and bottom, you came in at the side. Right, right. Yeah. And the main thing to worry about that stuff is is thermal pulling during reflow is why you don't do it. Right, because if you because uh, uh, as a trace expands and contracts in the oven, it will well, put no, stress on there. Well, no, it, 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 it pulls heat away because mm-hmm. that trace is copper, so it'll pull heat away from that side of the of the um, pad pad, and it'll actually rotate your part mm. from under the um, the uh, surface tension of the solder will actually rotate the part. So, in low volume prototypes, largish parts like over O six O three. Probably not a big deal at all. I was just about to say my gut feel is like on a big part with a lot of mass. Yeah. In comparison to the trace, it's probably not going to do no. much. But when you start getting to 042, smaller stuff, and really when you start doing high-density stuff, so you have parts right next to each other, so if one did tilt, it could short out to the part next to it and bridge, then you really have to start worrying about this kind of stuff and bal- kind of almost balancing the thermal load on your pads. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, Actually, so so this kind of uh, reminds me of something. I, I bet we've talked about this before. So so if you're following those rules, let's say you had a string of 0402 caps together, um, you wouldn't you wouldn't put a, a trace just straight across all the pads if they were all if they correct. all need to be connected together. You would make like little humps in between. Well, you would go one. basically. You draw one that went all the way across, and then you drop down. Right, into them. right. You would drop down such that they all get pulled in the long axis as opposed to the short, short axis. axis. Yeah, uh, which is funny because technically that's the correct way to do any two adjacent pads. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see this a lot in um, uh, real fine pitch components where, yeah, if you have two pads on a on a on a microcontroller, say, and they're connected together, some people just put it right from pad to pad, and that's super annoying. It's actually better practice to go out of the pad, loop around, and come back into the next pad, yeah. even though it seems ridiculous because you don't need to do well, that. Well, because usually what happens with, in that case, let's say you have TQFP, which is a 0.4 millimeter pitch, yeah. and you, have, you put that trace in the middle, there's not going to be any solder mask that will cover that either. And right. so what you'll get is what will look like a short. Even though they're supposed to be connected, when you start doing QC work, you'll see a short and basically be like, oh, we have to remove the short. And, you know, it causes quality issues and stuff like that. Right, yeah. It's 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 a, a QC nightmare. Yeah. Because the only way they can tell if that's okay is if they look at your design files. Yeah. And at the same time, 
even with your design files, that's still a failure, mm-hmm. a QC failure. So it, in order for a QC person to pass that, they have to forfeit whatever rule that they're doing. And and if you're getting something manufactured, a lot of times if you fail QC for some reason like that, they'll make you sign a piece of paper that says, I know this is a failure and I'm still okay with accepting it. Yeah. So it just gums up the mix. Yeah. And, and it's not just the bridging either. Well, because that, that trace is not... Exp- uh, has solder mask on it, it will actually get solder on it and bridge. Mm-hmm. So you're actually wicking um, paste away from your your actual part that needs to be soldered. So you might have lower amount of solder on your foot and what's the the heel mm-hmm. of your of your lead. And so I mean that's not good either. Well, and it impacts if if that part ever has to be reworked again ever. Uh, you know, you want you want basically every pad on a component to have the same equal amount of solder, such that if it's hit with hot air, it all reflows at the same time, and mm-hmm. you can pull a component off. But in that case, you'd have to hammer that one little piece a lot harder. And so, let's say you had a TQFP that had a bunch of bridged legs on one side of the component, you'd have to hammer that one side of the component with a lot of hot air just to be able to lift it off. It's not good practice, and that can damage the component. And the board. And right, and the board. You can yeah, you can lift traces and things. And 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 what's great about it is the fix is free. It doesn't require yeah. anything more and just get in the habit of looping out and coming back to the pad next to it. Mm-hmm. So but it's cool to actually put something like a reasoning behind why. Because at first, if you if you just look at electrically, it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. And actually, doing it that way, if you go like let's say we had that whole row of O four twos, and let's say that was a ground strip, that's actually better noise wise to do all the way across the pads. Uh, yeah, yeah, you get I guess lower you uh, get resistance. lower parasitics yeah, to lower, your ground right, plane. Right. Um, but yeah. It's not good for manufacturability, and so you gain a slight amount of parasitic conductance and, and impedance. Well, okay, but let's let's put it this way: if your circuit is so sensitive that it requires you to do that, then your design probably needs some updates. You know, like <laughs> if that is the the linchpin on that makes your circuit work, you're in for some when trouble. When butterfly flaps, it messes up. <laughs> yeah, when someone farts in the other room, <laughs> it stops working. <laughs> uh. Oh, cool. So I'll, I'll post some pictures of like what we were talking about there because there's not a lot. Of, I haven't been able to find an IPC document about this yet either because I know this is a thing because I've read a yeah. lot of like manufacturer papers on, but I haven't found an IPC document yet. Maybe hmm. I'm not searching for the right things. I know I've seen the one that I was talking about, about jumping two pads mm-hmm. on a gull wing component. I mm-hmm. know I've seen that before, but I don't I don't remember what number it is. There's so many. They they have like over a hundred documents that are just your standard operating documents. Yeah. You know, if you were to get like every document, it would be a whole bookshelf full of standards. It's ridiculous. So cool. So we'll wrap up this episode of the podcast talking about standards. Yeah, so that we was a, we, Yeah, we need a standard way to end these shows. Um how about how about we do this? That was the engineering <laughs> MacFab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Doman. Take Later, it easy. Everyone. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or if you found that IPC document that we are 
trying to think of. Um, tweet us at Macrofab on Twitter or email us at podcast at macrofab.com. If you are not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest map episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.